The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the long-awaited Mueller report and see what conclusions can be drawn from it. Clips today come from Gaslit Nation, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Mother Jones Podcast, Intercepted, Past, Present, and Criminal Injustice. We're going to open with a time capsule of recent history, just so we preserve the last couple dramatic weeks, which are basically a decade in Trump years, so we can remember how this all went down, and also for the benefit of future historians, who will have a very difficult time with this period of the last few years, of course. Okay, so in the lead-up to Barr's now infamous letter exonerating or so-called exonerating the President of the United States, we had legal experts reassure us that we can trust William Barr that he's a great choice for attorney general, that he respects the institution of the Department of Justice. He's no Matthew Whitaker, the brass knuckles Trump brought on as acting AG to protect him. Nancy Pelosi rules out impeachment, saying that people wanted her to impeach George W. Bush, and she didn't, and she doesn't want to impeach Trump either. He's just not worth it, she says. This gets smoothed out in Democratic Party talking points, the promise of, let's wait for what the Mueller report says. We kept hearing the Mueller report was finally coming. Democrats and Republicans united in the House of Representatives and unanimously voted that the Mueller report should be released. The vote was a historic 420 to zero. The Republicans in the Senate shot this down, but still the unanimous vote in the House was a sign that there were Republicans who would be willing to put country above party. Things were looking good for our democracy. The system of checks and balances might hold here. Trump himself said the report should be released. Let the people see the report. Then Barr releases his four-page letter saying the president had an obstructed justice and there's no conspiracy of coordination between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. We would later learn that Barr, in quoting fragments of Mueller's report, took Mueller's own words out of context, omitted words, and truncated Mueller's own explanation of what coordination means and doesn't mean. So a lot of cherry-picking there to serve a specific narrative. The mainstream media jumps immediately into running headlines saying that the Mueller report exonerates Trump, all based off of Barr's four-page letter. Ken Delaney in an NBC News even tweets, Folks, this is a total legal exoneration of the president. Congress will want to know more, of course, but the top line, no conspiracy, no obstruction. The New York Times and Washington Post run headlines saying Mueller finds no Trump-Russia conspiracy. For about a week, Russiagate skeptics enjoy a massive victory dance. 
turning into Janet Jackson herself, blasting by name the investigative journalists like David Corn and Marcy Wheeler, who dedicated years to researching the coalition of corruption that got Trump elected. The Trump White House quickly releases a memo to TV networks calling out Trump critics by name who should no longer appear on their programs. The Trump White House and Fox News call for investigations into the investigators. Ivanka Trump quotes Lincoln on Twitter. Truth is generally the best vindication against slander. Trump quickly turns to wanting to take away our health care and make all of Obamacare illegal. Cable news pundits ask themselves, why can't Trump just enjoy his victory of being exonerated by the Mueller report? Why does he have to change the subject so quickly? Republicans in the House, which had voted unanimously to release the Mueller report, suddenly start demanding Congressman Adam Schiff resign. They try to shout him down in Congress. At a time when the mainstream media is in lockstep with the Trump White House and saying that the Mueller report exonerates Trump and leading investigative journalists are being harassed with hit pieces dismissing their years of reporting, Adam Schiff pushes back in Congress and says, none of this is okay. Congress, including members like Schiff, who have full security clearance and can see the unredacted Mueller report, are denied by A.G. Barr. Something is not right here. Why won't Barr let Congress see the unredacted report? Polling shows that the American people are smarter than the Trump White House and mainstream media. The majority of Republicans, Democrats, and independents polled say they want to see the Mueller report. The public is not satisfied. Even Trump's approval rating sees no bounce after the Barr letter. Barr assures Congress and the American people that they will soon see the report, but redactions must be made to protect grand jury material and other information. People start to wonder what kind of discretion Barr will use. Investigators on Mueller's team leaked to the New York Times and Washington Post that they prepared summaries that could be released immediately to the public, and other details emerged painting a cover-up by Attorney General Barr. The mainstream media, which had joined Barr in exonerating Trump, suddenly remembers that Barr got his job in the first place by writing a memo criticizing Mueller's investigation. And he was also the Iran-Contra cleanup guy. <laughs> it's reported that Barr has troubling ties to Russia, which obligate him, like former Attorney General Sessions, to recuse himself. Mm -hmm. Here's Christina Maza in Newsweek. This much is known. On Barr's public financial disclosure report, he admits to working for a law firm that represented Russia's Alpha Bank and for a company whose co-founders allegedly have long-standing business ties to Russia. What's more, he received dividends from Vector Group, a holding company with deep financial ties to Russia. These facts didn't get much attention during Barr's confirmation hearing, as Congress was hyper-focused on an unsolicited memo Barr wrote prior to his nomination, which criticized the special counsel's investigation and whether he would release an unredacted Mueller report to Congress. Much of the information is public, but it has so far been unreported in relation to Barr. The president of Vector Group, Howard Lorber, brought Trump to Moscow in the 1990s to seek investment projects there. The trip is widely seen as the first of many attempts to establish a Trump Tower in Moscow. He added that Donald Trump Jr. allegedly called Lorber as he was setting up the Trump Tower meeting with a Russian lawyer. Lorber has extensive ties to Russia and was allegedly assisting with Trump Tower Moscow plans. On top of Barr's other choices, which reflect partisan bias, it is bad judgment to have any financial ties to a person so directly entangled with Trump, Don Jr., and the core of events and questions of the Russian investigation. Barr's former law firm, Kirkland and Ellis LLP, where he was counsel from March 2017 until he was confirmed as attorney general in February 2019, represented Russia's Alpha Bank. Barr earned more than a million at Kirkland. Barr also supervises at the Justice Department another Kirkland and Ellis alumnus with Alpha Bank ties. 
Early last year, Trump nominated Kirkland and Ellis partner Brian Benchkowski to the Justice Department's criminal division. In his role with the law firm, Benchkowski had represented Alpha Bank and supervised an investigation into suspicious online communications between the bank and servers belonging to the Trump organization. Investigators found no evidence that the Trump organization had communicated with Alpha Bank. Still, the bank is partially owned by the Russian oligarch German Khan, whose son-in-law, the London-based lawyer Alexander van der Zwan, was indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller for lying to investigators about a report his firm had written for Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort. A side note now on Alpha Bank from Natasha Bertrand at Politico. In December 2016, a few weeks after Donald Trump's surprise election victory, Russian President Vladimir Putin convened what a Russian oligarch described as an all-hands meeting with some of the country's top businessmen. A main topic of discussion, U.S. sanctions against Russia. One of the oligarchs present was Peter Avin, co-founder of Alpha Bank, Russia's biggest commercial bank. Avin had recently met with Putin one-on-one to discuss the sanctions and what to do about them. Putin said he had been struggling to get messages to Trump's inner circle and urged Avin to take steps to protect his bank from additional U.S. penalties. According to Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report, which details the episode, Avin perceived that as an order, not a request, according to Mueller, and understood, quote, that there would be consequences if he did not follow through. Avin quickly understood that his mission was to contact the Trump transition team and began an effort to contact Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And then, of course, we know what happened during that transition period. Kushner discussed opening a back channel of communication with the Kremlin. Then the Newsweek piece goes on to say that Deutsche Bank, which was the only bank that would lend to Trump when all of their banks viewed him as too hot to handle, the bank has also been implicated in Russian money laundering scandals. Two congressional committees are now looking into Trump's business ties to Deutsche Bank. It is unclear if Barr has defested from Vector Group or pulled his assets, his own assets, at a Deutsche Bank since he became attorney general. People before the Mueller report is released, we're still waiting on it. Barr is promising us it's coming. But people in the mainstream media, back to our timeline of recent events, people in the mainstream media are catching on that what Barr is doing smells a lot like a cover-up. While Congress has still not seen the Mueller report, and of course neither has the public in this timeline, as reported by The Hill, President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, said that the White House lawyers saw special counsel Robert Mueller's report two days before it was released to the public, and they prepared a rebuttal. Barr says that Mueller report is coming, but first he wants to hold a press conference. Legal experts point out that this is not normal. At the press conference, Barr tries to soften the blow of the coming Mueller report, making excuses for the president by arguing that Trump was upset about the investigation. This is what Barr said to reporters in that press conference. There is substantial evidence to show that the president was frustrated and angered by a sincere belief that the investigation was undermining his presidency, propelled by his political opponents, and fueled by illegal leaks. Rod Rosenstein stood behind Barr with clear tension on his face, sometimes even forgetting to blink, looking very much like a hostage in a hostage situation. Rosenstein also provides Time Magazine with a glowing essay praising Barr for their 2019 Time 100 list. The Mueller report is then released, all 448 pages, with several sections heavily redacted. And the clear takeaway, which we'll get into today, according to part one, page nine, quote, the Russian government 
interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion. According to the Mueller report, someone we don't know because the name is redacted, on November 9th, 2016, the day after the election, wrote to Russia's sovereign wealth fund that, quote, Putin has won. And after Trump wins, the Mueller report makes clear that Putin wanted a return on his investment. His chief concern was getting Trump to get rid of sanctions. It's become super popular since the William Barr letter was released a few weeks ago for people on the right and even some people on the left who we've talked about, uh, so-called Russia skeptics, to make a really big show out of demanding apologies from people. Are you ready to apologize for being so wrong about Russia? Are you ready to apologize to your viewers, to Donald Trump, to everybody else? But now that we've actually gotten the Mueller report, which we did sort of midday, uh, late last Last week on Thursday, almost everything that was asserted by serious investigative news outlets and reported by them during the two years of this investigation has been confirmed to be true by the Mueller report, at least to some degree. And I wish I didn't have to do the following disclaimers and clarifications, but I do because of the political environment in which we're currently operating. I, I need to be super clear. I don't want to confuse anybody. Donald Trump hasn't been caught personally colluding with Vladimir Putin. Nobody was seriously seriously claiming that the outcome of the Mueller investigation was going to be Donald Trump caught personally colluding with Vladimir Putin on the 2016 election. As William Barr, Donald Trump's attorney general, said during his press conference last week, um, no one on Trump's campaign personally participated in Russia's hacking of Hillary Clinton or the DNC. But again, nobody was claiming that Trump's campaign was specifically involved in that hacking. But now that we've actually had the time to go through the Mueller report, more than 400, 450 pages almost of the Mueller report in detail, the deniers if anybody are the ones who owe other people apologies, and I'm going to explain it to you. And let me be super clear. If you're going to write to me and tell me that I'm wrong in what I'm telling you here, uh, and you haven't actually looked through the Mueller report, you have no basis for telling me that I'm wrong because everything I'm going to tell you today is out of the Mueller report. We had this two-year campaign by Donald Trump and the right and even some on the left to call reporting on Russia fake news, to call serious reports about what Donald Trump and his people did in the 2016 election and during the investigation, conspiracy theories, whatever term you want to apply to it. The Mueller report tells us that most of the reports were accurate uh, at least to a significant degree. And again, if you haven't looked at the Mueller report, then what exactly are you going to argue with me about when I know many of you are going to send me angry messages and comments and tweets? Let's start, for example, with the Trump Tower meeting. Don Jr., 
Don Sr., Right Wing News, Hannity, whoever else, they all said ad nauseum, the meeting was basically nothing. It was an afterthought. It's not a story. No one within the Trump organization, campaign organization, was really counting on or putting much weight on that infamous meeting with the Russian lawyer. The Mueller report confirms that Trump Jr. immediately was super interested in this meeting. It was communicated within the campaign. Everybody was really eager to get dirt on Hillary Clinton from the Russians. The reporting on the story was almost completely accurate, despite all of the denials. Still doesn't mean Trump personally colluded with Putin. Nobody was seriously saying that was going to be the outcome. The pending information that they were waiting on was discussed at campaign staff meetings before the meeting took place. Campaign staffers were sitting around waiting for the information. This was a big deal internally. It was reported about 15 months ago. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it was reported more than 15 months ago, and the reports were effectively completely accurate. Another example. More than a year ago, it was reported that Donald Trump ordered Don McGahn, the White House counsel, to fire Robert Mueller. And Don McGahn reportedly refused, saying, we're not going to do that. That would be a bad idea. Those reports were called fake news by Trump. It was called fake news by Fox News. And the Mueller report confirms that the reports were true. It happened exactly as was reported. The Washington Post Back in 2017, reported that Paul Manafort was briefing government-connected Russians on the Trump-Clinton campaign of 2016. Hannity said, you can't trust the Washington Post. They're constantly reporting false stuff. The Mueller report confirms that it was taking place, the briefings were taking place by Paul Manafort of government-connected Russians exactly as the Washington Post reported. Another example, remember that story from BuzzFeed, which claimed that Trump told Michael Cohen to lie to Congress, and it was widely touted as fake news, Trump touting it as fake news and the enemy of the people and all of that stuff. Well, if you look at the actual content of the Mueller report, it, quote, finds that Cohen lied, and he did so at what he believed to be the president's behest, that the president knew he was giving false testimony, and that the president's lawyers encouraged that testimony. In his report, Mueller wrote that Trump's attorney told Cohen to, quote, stay on message and not contradict the president. It's confirmation of the story. Um, I could go on. I'll give you just another couple of examples. Uh, Russia successfully penetrated state voting systems. It was reported on way back when. It was denied, denied, denied. The Mueller report confirms that it's true. Another example. WikiLeaks was reportedly a go-between for Russian hackers and the dissemination of hacked information from the Clinton campaign and the DNC. No, no, no. WikiLeaks is just a clearinghouse of information. They're not political. They're not doing anything with Russia. Well, the Mueller report again confirms that the reporting was completely accurate. Another example, and I'm not going to go on all day with these, but there are so many. Trump personally didn't collude, but people under him tried to collude, like, for example, Don Jr. When it came to Don Jr. coordinating the Trump Tower Russia meeting, the Mueller report actually says that it appears Don Jr. was too dumb to know what he was doing might be criminal. Quote 
from the report. The office considered whether this evidence would establish a conspiracy to violate the foreign contributions ban, solicitation of an illegal foreign source contribution, or the acceptance or receipt of an express or implied promise to make a foreign source contribution. There are reasonable arguments that the offered information would constitute a thing of value within the meaning of these provisions, just like we've been saying, but the office determined that the government would not be likely to obtain and sustain a conviction for two other reasons. First, the office did not obtain admissible evidence likely to meet the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that these individuals acted willfully, meaning with general knowledge of the illegality of their conduct. And second, the government would likely encounter difficulty proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the value of the promised information exceeded the threshold for a criminal violation. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. did it, but he was too dumb to reasonably believe, according to what Mueller says, that he was committing a crime. The other glaring revelation from the report is that a ton of people lied to investigators and aren't being charged. I'll give you an example. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos's brother, Eric Prince, who famously ran that mercenary firm Blackwater before it was renamed multiple times, testified under oath and lied many times. Prince said he had no official or unofficial role in the campaign or transition, but it turns out he had multiple meetings with high-level campaign officials at Trump Tower, including with people like Don Jr. Clearly, this is at minimum an unofficial role in Trump's transition and campaign. He claimed that when he went to the Seychelles in January of 2017, it was to meet with clients from the United Arab Emirates. Turns out that it was actually um, uh, Trump-associated individuals who set up those meetings, not the UAE, another lie to investigators. Prince claimed under oath that he never communicated with Steve Bannon uh, regarding the UAE or U.S.-Russia relations. Well, we now know of text messages between Eric Prince and Steve Bannon during the time that Prince was in the UAE. It's all spelled out in the Mueller report. And again, it's all details, but these details continue to expose that lots of people lied and they are not facing consequences. So are there fair criticisms of reporting on the Russia probe? Absolutely. Corporate media was hyperbolic in many cases. Corporate media devoted way too many of these eight or 12 person panels to the probe. Sure, I'm on board with you. People got carried away with the probe in terms of reporting. Some Democrats got carried away thinking the probe would ultimately take down Trump, which I've been saying for more than a year that it would not. But if you look at the reporting from investigative sources, serious ones, and you compare the claims they made to what is in the Mueller report, most of those stories were correct. So the reporters who I won't even name who are agreeing that the Mueller report confirms uh, the the um, uh, coverage was wrong for years. I mean, they're just wrong. And the Mueller report is the proof that they're wrong. And the delusions are running rampant. And my ideal situation is one where forget about the right because we know that they're lost. I hope that the left can come together and agree that basically uh, most of the reporting was right, most of the serious allegations were correct, the expectation that the report would take Trump down was never reasonable, and that now we can say, hey guys, we've got 2020, because otherwise we are going to see Trump reelected in 2020, and we will have another four years of this. So once again, I believe that the left is slowly coming to a consensus agreement 
the entire left about what took place and what didn't took place. And it would be good to do that and to get past the partisan, uh, not even partisan, the internal bickering that has taken over a lot of uh, sort of enclaves of the left. And we've got to move on to 2020. Reading from the Mueller report, this is uh, the first half of it. It's page 36. And they're talking about the GRU, which is the Russian intelligence service, their version of the CIA or FBI. And the, um, well, I guess that's pretty much it here. The GRU targeted hundreds of email accounts used by Clinton campaign employees, advisors, and volunteers. In total, a GRU stole hundreds of thousands of documents from the compromised email accounts and networks. The GRU later released stolen Clinton campaign and DNC documents through the online personas DC Leaks and Guccifer 2.0, and later through the organization WikiLeaks. The release of the documents was designed in time to interfere with the 2016 U.S. presidential election and to undermine the Clinton campaign. The Trump campaign showed interest in the WikiLeaks releases, And in the summer and fall of 2016, redacted. After WikiLeaks' first Clinton-related release, redacted, the Trump campaign stayed in contact, redacted, about WikiLeaks' activities. The investigation was unable to resolve, redacted, WikiLeaks' release of the stolen Podesta emails on October 7, 2016. The same day a video from years earlier was published of Trump using graphic language about women. Uh, A, GRU hacking directed at the Clinton campaign. Subunit 1, GRU units target the Clinton campaign. Two military units of the GRU carried out the computer intrusions into the Clinton campaign, DNC, and DCCC. Military units 26165 and 74455. Military unit 26165 is a GRU cyber unit dedicated to targeting military, political, governmental, and non-governmental organizations outside of Russia, including in the United States. The unit was subdivided into departments with different specialties. One department, for example, developed specialized malicious software, malware, while another department conducted large-scale spear phishing campaigns. Redacted, a Bitcoin mining operation to secure Bitcoins was used to purchase computer infrastructure and used in hacking operations. Military Unit 74455 is a related GRU unit with multiple departments that engaged in cyber operations. Unit 74455 assisted in the release of documents stolen by Unit 26165, the promotion of those releases, and the publication of anti-Clinton content on social media accounts operated by the GRU. Officers from Unit 74455 separately hacked computers belonging to state boards of elections, secretaries of state, and U.S. companies that supplied software and other technology related to the administration of U.S. elections. Beginning in mid-March 2016, Unit 26165 had primary responsibility for hacking the DCCC and DNC, as well as email accounts of individuals affiliated with the Clinton campaign. Unit 26165 used Redacted to learn about redacted different Democratic websites, including Democrats.org, HillaryClinton.com, DNC.org, and DCCC.org, redacted 
began before the GRU had obtained any credentials or gained access to these networks, indicating that the larger DCCC and DNC intrusions were not crimes of opportunity, but rather the result of targeting. GRU officers also sent hundreds of spear phishing emails to the work and personal email accounts of Clinton Clinton campaign employees and volunteers. Between March 10, 2016 and March 15, 2016, Unit 26165 appears to have sent approximately 90 spear phishing emails to email accounts at HillaryClinton.com. Starting on March 15, 2016, the GRU began targeting Google email accounts used by Clinton campaign employees, along with a small number of DNC email accounts. The GRU's spear phishing operation enabled it to gain access to numerous email accounts of Clinton campaign employees and volunteers, including ca campaign chairman John Podesta, junior volunteers assigned to the Clinton campaign's advance team, informal Clinton campaign advisors, and a DNC employee. GRU officers stole tens of thousands of emails from spear phishing victims, including various Clinton campaign-related communications. Number two, intrusions into the DCCC and DNC networks. A, initial access. By no later than April, uh, this is now page 38. By no later than April 12, 2016, the GRU had gained access to the DCCC computer network using the credentials stolen from a DCCC employee who had been successfully spearfished the week before. Over the ensuing weeks, the GRU traversed the network, identifying different computers connected to the DCCC network. By stealing network access credentials along the way, including those of IT administrators with unrestricted access to the system, the GRU compromised approximately 29 different computers on the DCCC network. Approximately six days before first hacking into the DCCC network on April 18, 2016, GRU officers gained access to the DNC network through a virtual private network connection, a VPN, between the DCCC and DNC networks. Between April 18, 2016 and June 8, 2016, Unit 26165 compromised more than 30 computers on the DNC network, including the DNC mail server and shared file server. Unit 26165 implanted on the DCCC and DNC networks two types of customized malware, known as X-Agent and X-Tunnel. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. I'm joined by Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief David Korn. David, 
how much have you been able to put in your head so far? Well, I'm still getting through the report. I've jumped around a bit looking at particular portions of it. And it seems pretty clear that what Mueller is doing is confirming a lot of what we know about the Trump-Russia scandal and making a pretty undeniable case that the president of the United States is a damn liar. I mean, it just comes out again and again and again throughout the report. Um, there's a scene in which he tries to press Don McDan, uh, his, the White House counsel, to deny publicly that he, Trump, ordered McCann to fire Robert Mueller. And, and, and McGahn says, I'm not going to do that. Uh, there's a scene in which Trump, you know, is basically putting out a false statement and directing the, a, the issuance of a false statement regarding the Trump Tower meeting, that meeting in June 2016 where Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner met with a Russian emissary hoping to get dirt on Hillary Clinton after being told this was part of a Russian effort to help the Trump campaign. Uh, again and again and again, of course, on the one of the biggest lies that uh, he had nothing to do with Russia. We have lots of details here on the Trump Moscow project he was pursuing while running for office. There's even this scene in which Michael Cohn says to him, you know, you're out there denying you have anything to do with Russia, and we're trying to put this deal together. And Trump goes, well, you don't, we don't, you know, it's okay. It's not a deal yet. It's not finalized. Well, a letter of intent had been signed. So what we see here is Trump lying his way through the Trump-Russia scandal. We also see Again, this really long series of curious interactions between people near Trump at the Trump campaign and Russia while Russia was attacking the United States, even after that had become public. A lot of that still remains curious and explained. But at the same time, while they're meeting with Russians, that, you know, at the same time that Russia is attacking, we see Trump and his campaign aides and others out there denying that the attack's underway. Mueller makes that point that Trump and others are denying the Russians are attacking while they are engaging with Russians. Donald Trump asked Roger Stone to get more information about what WikiLeaks was doing when it was dumping material from the, 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 that Russians had, had, had hacked from Democrats. Now, the name Roger Stone is redacted, but it's pretty damn clear that's what it refers to. Here we have Donald Trump directing Roger Stone to take action um, in some regard to what WikiLeaks was doing. Um, this is no exoneration. This shows the president being engaged, lying actively, and helping the Russians by echoing their disinformation. A lot of it is stuff we've known. A lot more meat on the bone now. David, take our listeners back to this morning. 9.30 a.m. at the Justice Department. Seems like a million years ago right now. Attorney General William Barr getting ahead of the release of this report. What happened? Well, this was pretty unprecedented in the annals of Washington. Usually when there's a big report that comes out, uh, they sometimes give it 
to reporters ahead of time, sometimes 10 minutes, sometimes even like a day on an embargoed basis, meaning you cannot write about it, but you can read it and then be able to ask important questions. Sometimes it's released at the same time as a press conference, and then you furiously look through you know, what you think are the most important parts as you formulate a question. But in this instance, um, no report at all until after Bill Barr had his half an hour to totally give a pro-Trump spin on it, to contextualize it, to go on about how there was no collusion. We've heard that before. To say there was no illegal participation in the dissemination of the WikiLeaks material. Not that there was no Trump campaign participation, but no illegal participation. Um, and going on about how I find, that's Bill Barr talking, that there was no obstruction and not explaining fully why uh, Robert Mueller in his report says we cannot clear the president of obstruction. Um, it was a real spin job, clearly not trying to be transparent. If you really cared about informing the public, you would hand out the report and then have a press conference or give people an hour or so to read it and then have a press conference. Um, so it was yet again, Bill Barr acting not as attorney general representing the United States of America, but acting as Roy Cohn, the mob lawyer who for many years was Donald Trump's own personal lawyer. Right. Barr repeated Trump's favorite slogan, no collusion, more than half a dozen times. He even went as far as to say that Trump was understandably frustrated about scrutiny around Russia. How will this appearance be remembered going forward? Uh, well, that was just one of the oddest moments, too, when he said, well, you know, the president was really frustrated, really frustrated. So, you know, as if that's an excuse for actions that might be interpreted as obstruction of justice. Um, he acted as a defense counsel, not as the chief law enforcement uh, official in the land. The report itself is incredibly detailed. So a few key takeaways Trump's campaign ties to Russia were wide-ranging, though Mueller doesn't believe this amounted to criminal conspiracy. So if it wasn't criminal conspiracy, how should our listeners think about that? It's what we've been talking about for a long time now, that the Trump campaign did not conspire directly with the Russian attack on the DNC servers or with the Internet Research Agency that was putting out fake social media to sow discord and to help Donald Trump. No, there was not that sort of sit down. But what the Trump campaign did do, what they did do, two major things. They signaled to the Russians that they didn't mind Russian interference in the election, the Trump Tower meeting uh, in early June 2016, when they sat down with a Russian emissary after being told that person would give them dirt as part of a Moscow plot to help Trump get elected, uh, signaled to the Russians that they didn't mind such activity. Now, they were upset because that meeting did not produce the dirt on Hillary Clinton that they expected. But by just having a meeting, they're telling the Russians, yeah, go ahead. And by coming out publicly 
again and again throughout the campaign and saying there's no Russian attack going on. Even after Trump is briefed by the intelligence community in August 2016 that the Russians are behind this. That is also sending another signal to the Russians that they don't mind and they might even be enjoying this. And what it's also doing is echoing the Russian disinformation when they claimed, we're not involved, we're not doing anything. And that makes it easier for the Russians to get away with this. It's like a guy standing on the corner, uh, well, bank's being robbed, and he knows the bank is being robbed, and he says, nothing's happening. Now, whether he's in on the robbery or not, he's now aiding and abetting that bank robbery and helping them get away with it. And in this case, the robbers are hitting the bank in order to help the guy on the corner. So there's a lot here that's, you know, that, that Mueller at the end of the day is saying is not criminal direct conspiracy, but it's still wrongdoing. It's still lying. And so what we're seeing in the Mueller report is reinforcement of some of these foundational elements of the scandal. And I know that Trump and others out there are going to say, well, no crime, you know, complete exoneration. But there's a lot of wrongdoing here. And whether it's criminal or not, it still can be acts of treachery and acts of betrayal. First, I wanted to check in with my Intercept colleague, Naomi Klein. She is, of course, the author of The Shock Doctrine, No Logo, This Changes Everything. More recently, she wrote the book, No Is Not Enough, about resistance in the Trump era. Naomi Klein, welcome back to Intercepted. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, What's your reaction to the way that this Russiagate story has been covered? My first reaction was that this is what happens when you have cable news decide to react to the first reality show president by turning themselves into a reality TV show. You know, if there's one thing that we have to give Trump credit for, it's that he understands how to get ratings using a reality TV formula. That is a gift that he has. Immediately after the election, this narrative that he was a stooge of Russia and that there was this cloak and dagger, Tom Clancy style mystery to uncover was so good for ratings, especially if you plugged it into this reality TV show formula of constantly teasing the reveal after the commercial break that millions of people got addicted to it. It represents a massive abdication of responsibility to cover stories that were in front of us, that were glaring, that required huge amounts of digging about corruption, about conflicts of interest for this very dangerous presidency. And I just couldn't help imagining what would happen if these news networks practiced real journalism. (laughs) The responsibility for that failure is something that is really incalculable, like in terms of what it's going to cost us, what we don't know in terms of how this has benefited Trump, who was vulnerable on so many fronts that were right in front of us that we didn't need the conspiracy theories for. If we could have just waited and let the investigation do its work and then report on the findings, they could have built a stronger case for impeachment just based on corruption. I I was wondering what it would look like if we drew a Venn diagram of journalists who got it right about Iraq and WMDs and journalists who got it right in terms of 
real serious skepticism to the claims of powerful Democrats, the intelligence community, Hillary Clinton, uh, and these cable news hosts, because it seems like there are two camps, uh, if you, if you break this down in a very generic way. There were the people that hyped and swore that the overarching story is true and that Mueller is just on the verge of, you know, indicting Donald Trump for treason. And then there was another track of this where there were reporters, many of them independent journalists, that were really critically analyzing every incident that took place, every new action, every new court filing, and rejecting through fact the overarching allegation that Trump is a bought and paid for Russian asset. And even Michael Isakoff, who was part of promoting the Steele dossier's findings at the beginning of this story in the past few months, has really started to take shots at uh, the way that this is panning out and the way that it's being covered, whether it's by BuzzFeed or other large news organizations. Right. And I mean, I think that we have to talk about the business model at play here. You know, what what were the incentives in place that prevented journalists at these cable news outlets and, and other outlets from from exercising real integrity. But the idea that you would invest everything in this one overarching story, that's what I think we have to really probe. And it has come at such a tremendous cost, including the fact that we know that Trump is a bought and paid for asset of the Trump organization, and that there were so many stories that were one day flashes in the pan that deserved to be amplified on cable news. And they just weren't because they didn't fit into this sexier and more addictive story that was also the story of salvation, right? The story that you were going to get saved by this report off in the distance, that there was just some kind of escape hatch, which meant that you didn't have to do the more labor-intensive work of actually trying to speak to the people who voted for Trump and make the case for why he was a complete fraud, why he had betrayed his base. And, you know, there was this moment of sort of mea culpa after the election where people, you know, it, at News Network said, look, you know, we made a mistake. We were too attracted to the ratings. We couldn't take our eye off Trump and we handed him the presidency, right? And that was supposed to be some sort of a wake-up call. And far from being a wake-up call, the business incentives at these news organizations are such that they just doubled down, right? And they decided to throw in with the Trump reality show, who's getting voted off this week, right? Who's being indicted this week? It followed exactly the reality show formula. And it was incredible for ratings in the same way that The Apprentice was incredible for ratings. It just wasn't news. Right. And it occurs to me that the Democrats, after that humiliating defeat where the chosen one, Hillary Clinton, did not assume power, that they've now added insult to injury by completely mishandling the first two years of this incredibly dangerous administration and handing Trump a, an incalculably valuable propaganda asset that he's going to use on the 2020 campaign trail. And I think some of these Democrats, if Trump wins again, really need to be confronted with the role that they played in making a second term for this guy possible. 
That is what is so scary about this moment. If you want to talk about it being a stolen election, talk about the Electoral College. Talk about all of the much more significant systemic rigging that is going on. These are things that are actually in the political realm. Unlike this strategy, which is just so flat out dumb to put all your eggs in the basket of an investigation that you have no control over. It represented this synergy between a corrupt political party that didn't want to look at its own complicity in betraying its base to the extent that people stayed home, did not have enthusiasm for their candidates, and in some cases went over to vote for this dangerous clown Donald Trump. And a news media that could not give up the incredible addiction to Donald Trump ratings. And when we have seen aberrations from this formula, like when we've seen Chris Hayes decide to you know, go to the border and practice real journalism and show the American people what is happening with family separations, we see the real political change that that can lead to. But it needs to be sustained. It needs to be sustained. It needs to be on the news every single night. It can't be an aberration. Well, once in a while, you go out and practice journalism and the rest of the time it's this talking heads reality show you just can't in my view it isn't too late we are fortunate that there is a new generation of politicians in congress who while they believe in holding trump accountable and putting impeachment on the table uh, for crimes that we know about that don't require any conspiracy theories that are in plain sight that violate the Constitution because of the emoluments clause and the blatant self enrichment. You know, more importantly, they're also advancing an alternate political vision um, of Medicare for all, of the Green New Deal, which is making an offer to people, right? Because we always knew that this could not be another election that was just an anti Trump election. And that underlies as well the logic of, you know, investing so much in Robert Mueller. Well, this is where I think the history of independent and special counsels actually is really important because so many anti-Trump people were looking at the Mueller investigation through the lens of Watergate, which of course was involved in independent counsel, but also Ultimately, the way that most people understand Watergate is through the congressional hearings and the ultimate um, resignation of the president. And that has been the dominant framework for understanding most of Donald Trump's presidency anyway. But if we think in terms of independent and then special counsels, and we can talk about the difference between the two of those, I mean, the, the most proximate analogy here is the Iran-Contra investigation and the way that that independent counsel, Lawrence Walsh, he got tons of indictments. He got tons of convictions. So he managed to indict 14 people. 11 of them were convicted on a wide range of charges. But his investigation lasted seven years. And even though he proved this high-level conspiracy and wrongdoing within the Reagan administration and ultimately within the Bush administration, since Vice President George H.W. Bush was also implicated in all of this, one of the things that we learned from Iran-Contra is even when you have the goods, even when you're able to put out the report, thanks to the power of the executive and especially of presidential pardons, all of that work that he did was in many ways undone because the executive was so much more powerful than any independent counsel ever could be. The reason that history is important, right, is because 
the expectations put upon Robert Mueller were way out of sync with what the power of an independent counsel ever could be. Right. I think, first of all, we should note that you wrote a piece about this in the Washington Mm -hmm. Post, which we'll link to. And I was really, really persuaded by your argument, Nikki. And I thought that was an incredibly helpful framework for thinking about this because Watergate just dominates our conception of American politics in so many different ways. And it becomes, you know, the only touchstone we have for, for especially for political wrongdoing. Right. And, and, and it's not the only historical um, example we have. So I think bringing in the Iran Contra is another way to think about that is this is so enlightening i do wonder how does the lewinsky scandal the star report play into this i mean is that a useful framework for thinking about this as well because one of the things i've been thinking about is you know the star report grow and the lewinsky investigation grows out of whitewater a failed investigation um, and kenneth star was so determined to prove that uh, bill clinton was a criminal that he was pursuing whatever threads he could ultimately that leads him to monica lewinsky that's seems to me um, quite different than what Mueller has done here, which is not to kind of go after loose threads as much as to mm-hmm. kind of tightly investigate a case that has lots of interconnected elements. So Kenneth Starr's time as an independent counsel is actually really important here, both as an analogy and in terms of what actually happened, because Starr's sprawling investigation and the partisan uses of Starr and ultimately the Starr report to try to impeach President Clinton on some very thin accusations not at all related to the original intent of the investigation, Whitewater, as you were mentioning, is part of the reason why after the independent counsel statute runs out in 1999, you don't get a re-upping of it. What you get instead is the creation of the Office of Special Counsel, Mm -hmm. which is much more restricted in what it can do. Robert Mueller could not do that kind of investigation that Kenneth started because he didn't have the same powers. And also his report wasn't going to be automatically released or released in any kind of easy way because now there's this check where the report goes to the attorney general instead. And the attorney general then has power to withhold information, decide what's going to be released to the public. And so I think that's really important. But I think as a historical analogy, it's important as well, because in many ways, Republicans in talking about the Mueller report often compare it to Kenneth Starr, because apparently now they think Kenneth Starr went too far. We'll see if that holds up in other situations when there's Mm. a Democratic president. But in this case, they're like, well, Bob Mueller is is going around and he's investigating things he never had the right to investigate. And this has gone on too long. And Democrats have gotten out of control the way that Republicans got out of control in the 1990s. Oh, hindsight's 2020. I mean, (laughs) and also like, to be clear, like, this is very tactical. This is not something oh, yeah. that Republicans actually believe. And yet it is still important that Americans have that precedent of the star investigation in mind, because that really was a case where somebody just went off the rails. But it's also important to note that special counsel doesn't have that power to go off the rails in the same way. Well, it really makes you wonder how different um, the Clinton era would have played out, though, if we'd gotten these nuggets of kind of synopsis, you know, synopses of the report vetted through the Clinton administration. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, it would have been night and day, just night and day. Apparently, Monica Lewinsky, somebody asked that on Twitter yesterday, Monica Lewinsky writes back and she's like, yeah, can you imagine? I can. And, you know, it would have like changed her life for sure, but it would have changed the course of the country potentially as well.
Now, obstruction of justice just for uh, uh, review's sake uh, means uh, interference with the orderly administration of law and justice. It's governed by a number of different federal statutes all kind of grouped together. There are maybe 20 different types of obstruction uh, that you can think of, but all of them center on the idea that there was some uh, fen- pending federal proceeding or investigation or case uh, that the defendant uh, who is targeted by the obstruction charge knew of that proceeding or case or investigation, and number three, had a corrupt motive in trying to interfere with it uh, in any number of ways, whether that's paying a bribe, subverting the investigation, stopping it, whatever it is. So if that's obstruction of justice, this report uh, in that section really lays out a very damning case for obstruction of justice. Uh, the fact that Mueller does not indict himself or recommend indictment seems to have a lot more to do with the governing theory accepted in the Department of Justice that you can't indict a sitting president than it has to do with the lack of evidence. There are at least 10 instances cited in this part of the Mueller report uh, in which the president uh, did things that really could uh, fulfill that definition of obstruction of justice in many different ways. And the one that really stands out, if you ask me, involves his former White House counsel, Don McGahn. This is an amazing story. Uh, And for a number of reasons, uh, McGahn kind of becomes the guide to how this sort of thing went on during uh, Mr. Trump's time as president. Uh, uh, let me just walk you through some of the findings with McGahn and how they got into this report in the first place. Uh, you remember that uh, uh, after Mr. Mueller was appointed, there's already been a lot of press coverage well before this report came out about the fact that Mr. Trump was very upset about this. He was constantly belittling the attorney general, calling him names, shouldn't have recused himself, so on and so forth. Never would have appointed him. Uh, and, and, and that if he'd known that Sessions was going to recuse himself. Well, comes June of 2017, and uh, Mr. Trump is quite upset with the Mueller investigation, and he's convinced himself Mueller has to go. And he makes two phone calls to his White House counsel, Don McGahn, on a Saturday. And he tells McGahn, Mueller's got to go, he's conflicted, he has to be fired. McGahn, receiving these phone calls, decides he's going to sit on this. He's not going to do it. He he knows that this would be wrong. It would cause disastrous damage to Mr. Trump's presidency, even if Trump himself doesn't realize it. And he does nothing. The president calls again that same day. In the second call on that Saturday in June of 2017, uh, the president says to McGahn, he's got to go. Mueller's got to go. I want you to do this. I want you to get it taken care of. I want you to call me after you do it to tell me you've done it. Again, McGahn refuses uh, to do this. He decides uh, he can't do it. He won't do it. And he's going to resign. So he uh, he tells everybody around him, his wife presumably, and uh, some of his closest aides, that this is what he's decided to do. He actually goes into the White House to start packing up. Uh, he has conversations uh, in that span of time on that day and maybe into the next with uh, the White House chief of staff, then Reince Priebus, and Steve Bannon, then still an advisor to the president, and they talk him out of resigning. And uh, the president... 
never mentions this to him again in the short term. He decides uh, apparently uh, he's going to give up on the idea. McGahn reports to work on Monday. Uh, it's never raised again. Uh, the president presumably knows that McGahn decided to resign uh, and then took it back, but never says anything to McGahn about it. Now, time goes on, and during that summer of 2017, a new team of lawyers comes in for uh, President Trump, and they have a new strategy that they sell him on. Everybody who is an aide to the president, who Robert Mueller wants to talk to, should go in and talk to him. No holds barred. They should just go and have conversations, and the president will be very open about everything, and that will get this taken care of, and it'll all be over by the fall of 2017. Now, of course, we know that didn't happen. Well, among the people in the White House who thought this was a very bad idea was Don McGahn. McGahn said, no, you shouldn't do this. I've looked at how other presidencies have have been damaged by this sort of strategy. Please don't do it. But those lawyers sold the president on this strategy, and he was going with it. So McGahn actually becomes a witness. He is told, uh, like the good soldier that he is, that he must go into Mueller's office on request bring whatever documents he had, which included a lot of notes and so forth that McGahn had taken, always takes contemporaneous notes. And he goes in and he talks to Mueller. And remember, he's the guy who stood up and said, this is a bad idea. But now the Trump White House is on a different legal path and they have sold the president on this idea that everybody should cooperate and be open. So even the attorney-client privilege, which could arguably apply here, doesn't because the president has effectively waived it. So McGahn goes in, talks to Mueller and tells him about this incident back in June of that same year in which the president ordered him to fire Mueller and how he did not do it. Now, fast forward into the late part of 2017 and into the early part of 2018. We've got new reporting out of the press then. This came out of the New York Times in that period of time, reporting on the June incident that President uh, Trump had told McGahn, you got to fire Mueller, and McGahn had refused, and so forth. When this comes out in the press, in the New York Times, the president is furious and he calls McGahn in and he said, you got to correct this. This is wrong. Uh, you got to come out with a statement that says, I never, uh, that what, that's not what happened. The president didn't tell me to do that. Uh, I have, you know, I, I've, I've, that's never, not been the case and that's just simply wrong. And McGahn refuses. He says, I can't do that. Number one, that's not what happened. And number two, I already told Mueller this. And the president is apoplectic. Says, no, you have to do it. We need you to do it. And in fact, after McGahn uh, uh, says he's not going to do it, the president says, we need you to create a record. We need you to create some kind of a piece of paper so that we can refer back to it. And it shows that I never said that. Now, McGahn knows this is not true. He also knows he's got contemporaneous notes that show that that is not what happened. And he also knows he's already told Mueller quite the opposite under oath. And so here's the guy who tried to save the president from his worst instincts by not carrying out his orders to fire Mueller and instead uh, ignores them. Then 
his, against his own advice, McGahn's own advice, he is put, you know, with Mueller, so go give Mueller all your information, show him your notes and so forth. We're just going to be open on, on this. He didn't want to do that. Everybody else decided differently. He's already done it, according to the president's wishes, and now it's all too late. Right Now, the reason I highlight this is because, number one, it is a stunning view inside uh, the workings of the White House at the, at the most minute level, the interactions between the president and the White House counsel. I mean, that is just not something you get to look into regularly or at all. Number two, attorney-client privilege, which would have protected this sort of thing, at least as between the White House and Mr. McGahn. Uh, this has been waived. So that curtain is drawn away. And then you see the president not only instructing McGahn to lie about it and McGahn refusing, but then instructing McGahn to create evidence, to create evidence, to falsify a document that didn't exist at the time. This, ladies and gentlemen, if this isn't obstruction of justice, I actually don't know what it would be. I mean, this fits the definition of almost any federal statute that you could find on this. So what Mueller is saying, and he said this clearly, he is not exonerating the president on obstruction of justice. He has laid out the case. Should Congress want to take it up? Because the Justice Department, as I said before, has already said any number of times and in past policies, we don't indict a sitting president. Mueller goes along with that policy. And he said, but if you, you know, if they want to do something about this, Congress has all the ammunition it could possibly need to go along and investigate, impeach, or whatever. We've just heard clips today, starting with Gaslit Nation laying out the recent history leading up to the release of the Mueller report. The David Pakman Show went down a list of previously reported stories that the Mueller report confirmed to be true. We heard a portion of the report itself being read on the Tom Hartman program, detailing the various methods being used by the Russian intelligence agency to influence the election. And I just want to note here that I chose to play this portion of the report in particular, because there were lots of clips directly from the report I could have chosen, but I chose this one specifically in response to a lot of commentary I heard from progressive outlets who seem to be maybe a little overzealous in their anti-Trump-Russia conspiracy debunking, some who were right and good for them for not jumping on board the Trump-is-a-Russian-agent-Manchurian-candidate bandwagon, for some reason decide to go a step further and still say there's no real evidence that Russia was involved in tampering with the election at all, and that any suggestion that they were is fear-mongering and bringing back the Cold War and all of that— and there was a lot of talk that focused only on ad dollars spent by Russian agents on social media and when those ad dollars were spent. And when you focus that narrowly just on that metric, it can give the impression that there was effectively no possibility of measurable influence due to the really small amount of money spent and the fact that many of the ads were actually placed after Election Day. 
But if that's not all you think about, that's not all you focus on, if you include, amongst other things, accessing and helping disseminate the DNC's private emails, then it seems impossible to conclude that there was no Russian influence on the election because those emails were huge news. Everyone knew about it. And th this evidence goes back at least a year to when Mueller charged 12 Russian intelligence officials in connection with the DNC email hack and the intercept, which I am using as a reference because it's a media outlet that is on one hand, very progressive, but on the other, very anti Trump Russia conspiracy. And they had this to say about the DNC hack way back in July, 2018, quoting, Mueller's prosecutors charged 12 Russian intelligence officials listed by name, rank, and job title with engineering the hack of the Democrats during the election. In damning detail, the indictment makes the case that the hack of the Democratic Party was a highly structured, officially sanctioned, covert action operation conducted by Russian intelligence, namely the GRU, Pause. That's what Tom Hartman was reading about in that segment, uh, pulling from the report, continuing, quote, Russia's military intelligence arm. If the allegations hold up, then there can no longer be any question as to whether the cyber attack was ordered and approved by the Putin government. So I just wanted to highlight that to dispel the idea that, you know, that, that there was never any influence from Russia as some progressives are still claiming for reasons I do not understand. Uh, th that quote I pulled is from the article, Indictment of Russian intelligence operatives should quell harebrained conspiracy theories on DNC hack. Because the, the people who say, no, it wasn't Russia, it could have been these other things, they are all harebrained conspiracy theories having to do with inside jobs and, you know, other ideas that simply do not hold up and there is no evidence for, whereas there is plenty of evidence on the other side. Anyway, sorry, getting back, listing what we heard. Uh, after that, we then heard the Mother Jones podcast speaking with journalist David Korn about William Barr's spinning of the report and the welcoming attitude of the Trump campaign to Russian interference. Jeremy Scahill on Intercepted spoke with Naomi Klein about the media environment surrounding this report since the beginning. Past present discussed the history of special counsel investigations. And finally, we just heard criminal injustice detailing the case for obstruction of justice against Donald Trump. Members this week will be hearing a couple more perspectives on the report and more reading directly from the report itself. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, this is Connor from Worcester. I am just calling to throw some thoughts out there about 2020. I, I wanted to bring up a, a point that you had uh, made leading up to the 2018, the midterm elections about actually Joe Manchin and how people who wanted to um, accumulate power for Democrats and other committees would do well to vote for Joe Manchin, even though he might not match up with 
the um, the most uh, progressive values because if Democrats have a majority in the Senate, people like Bernie Sanders become the chairs of their committees um, or it was something along those lines. And this is going to be my lens for 2020. I don't know if it's too early to get this out there in the zeitgeist, but the field is so wide, it can be kind of hard to know. And I, I just think that it, it's useful to keep in mind that no matter who wins the Democratic primary, that person or whoever wins the general election is going to be signing legislation for the next four years. They're going to be appointing judges for the next four years. They're going to have basically unchallenged authority over foreign policy for the next four years. So even Joe Biden, who I think we can probably consider the worst one. I mean, he's definitely the most popular worst candidate on the Democratic side of the field. But I think that even he would be a step above our current president. So that is kind of my context, um, because it can be frustrating to look at the race and see people like my favorite uh, Liz Warren not get the attention that I believe she deserves. I, I think that she uh, has a lot of great policy ideas. I fully admit that she has a bit of a checkered past in terms of the um, consulting that she's taken. I think she used to be a Republican, but fact check me on that one. But in any case, I, I do think she also has a long track record of looking out for the little guy um, and and a lot of her policy positions are in the right place. I'd like to end with just a, an encouragement for more conservatives to call in. I really appreciate the perspectives of people with different viewpoints to that end. The two sources that I have that I would like to recommend to other listeners if they want to get out of their silos, I listen to um, Econ Talk, which is a podcast by Russ Roberts. Um, I re- listen to that fairly regularly. He's a libertarian. I believe he gets his money from the Library of Liberty, which probably has connections to, you know, all of the evil billionaires that you can think of. But, you know, I think he, as a host, does a really good job of challenging his guests in ways that you might not expect him to. He, he really does try to um, put himself in, a, in an opposition perspective, even if he agrees completely with whatever the uh, guest is saying. The other person is on YouTube, uh, Bo of the Fifth Column. I think most of his views end up, I, he's, a, he's a pretty staunch libertarian, it seems like, but um, I think he's you know, he's got a really interesting way of looking at things, and uh, I think that everybody could benefit from just learning about the different ways people talk. I think he's good at talking to um, conservatives. If you aren't looking for that, the other two recommendations that I'll throw out that I haven't heard on this program are Philosophy Tube and ContraPoints, both of which are more lefty sources, online commentators. Their videos run a bit long, but they're really well produced. So. I'm sorry that that ran long. I tend to ramble, but um, I hope you have a great day, everybody listening to this. Um, thanks for the show, Jay. As always, it is awesome. Bye-bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut, member calling in regarding your question on politics and how it's going so far. Just happened to have a conversation last week where somebody was talking about that and I chimed in and we got into a discussion about Biden and I said I didn't wasn't in favor of Biden, in which case their response was, really, you would pick Trump over Biden? I'm like, that's not what I said. But I brought up Bernie Sanders and Warren and the first reaction I got was, Bernie, oh, I'm so done with him. He is being so negative and I am so tired of his campaign. Something I hear all the time. I think we all are tired of negative campaigns, but I was surprised to hear 
that be used in the terms of Bernie because I am not familiar with Bernie being negative. He may be critical of other people. He may be critical of policies or behaviors, um, calling people out, kind of like Senk does. But I haven't heard him being just generally negative in, in, in attacking as was implicated. So I was just curious if anybody else had, if that is, you know, if there was any truth to that, because I immediately dismissed it as not being in character. But obviously, there's always a something that someone is leaning on. So anyway, that's all I've heard. Otherwise, everything seems to be quiet on the front other than, you know, local politics and and educational pieces locally. But other than that, there some Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I got to say, I don't have too much to add uh, here at the end other than to let you know that the upcoming episode later this week is going to be, I think, sort of fittingly about the idea of impeachment. We're having sort of a Trump corruption theme week, I guess. And so I just thought I would let you know now in case you would like to chime in and give your thoughts. We would love to hear them. Uh, You know, there are arguments for, arguments against. There's the politics of it. There's the policy. There's just the the patriotism. Wherever you're coming from, uh, I I would love to hear your thoughts in the event that you would rather than uh, reacting to the upcoming episode, if you would like to preact to it, then you can call in now. As always, the voicemail line is at 202-999-3991. And with that, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, especially by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.